Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 Podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. In this week's episode, I am continuing a little mini-series on Paulo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. This particular episode will unpack chapter 3. So if you haven't listened to the podcast that unpack chapters 1 and chapter 2, I highly recommend starting there. This particular episode is going to focus on the concept of dialogue that Freire mentions in all of the chapters. And the episode two weeks from now on chapter four, which is the final chapter, will kind of summarize and synthesize all these understandings into a theory that talks about anti-dialogical practices and dialogical practices that leaders can engage in. In other words, that educators can engage in when working with students or leaders in communities. Okay, so this chapter kind of talks about an abstract concept of naming. So here's a quote that kind of summarizes it a little bit. Quote, to exist humanly is to name the world, to change it. Once named, the world in its turn reappears to the namers as a problem and requires of them a new naming, end quote. That's from pages 81 to 82. So my understanding of this opening section is that naming the world is the act of declaring what is true and what is not true in the world. In other words, this naming shapes the ways of being that go with the so-called truth while also defining what and who goes against that truth. So naming as a form of dominance in education might be equivalent to saying what counts as learning or demonstration of an understanding or pedagogy, which standards are important, which standards are not standards, what concepts and practices are not standards, etc. Each one of these is a form of naming as it sheds a light on what is considered to be true within like the field of education. So if some people are doing the naming and other people are not, this can create a problem in terms of the people who define what is true in the world and what is considered to be good or bad in the world while not allowing the perspectives of others is then a form of oppression. So to counter this form of oppression, Freire recommends engaging in dialogue. So here's a quote from page 82. Quote, dialogue is the encounter between men mediated by the world, in order to name the world. Hence, dialogue cannot occur between those who want to name the world and those who do not wish this naming, between those who deny others the right to speak their word and those whose right to speak has been denied them. Those who have been denied their primordial right to speak their word must first reclaim this right and prevent the continuation of this dehumanizing aggression. End quote. So in other words, dialogue must not exist for the purpose of naming on behalf of others. In other words, like through a form of depositing one's view on the world, if we were to take a banking approach that I mentioned in the episode two weeks ago. But instead, it needs to be an act of creation in collaboration with many different people. So Freire also mentions that this dialogue needs to come from a place of love. If you do not love others, you will not engage in the kind of dialogue that Freire suggests is necessary to name and transform the world. So here are some questions that we can consider when engaging in dialogue. This is from page 83. Quote, How can I dialogue if I always project ignorance onto others and never perceive my own? How can I dialogue if I regard myself as a case apart from others, mere its to whom I cannot recognize other eyes? How can I dialogue if I consider myself a member of the in-group of pure men, the owners of truth and knowledge, for whom all non-members are these people, or the great unwashed? How can I dialogue if I start from the premise that naming the world is the task of an elite and that the presence of the people in history is a sign of deterioration, thus to be avoided? 
How can I dialogue if I am closed to, and even offended by, the contribution of others? How can I dialogue if I am afraid of being displaced, the mere possibility causing me torment and weakness? End quote. So those are some excellent questions to reflect on when considering engaging in dialogue. And I know those questions were very broad, but we can reframe them as education-related questions in terms of how are you engaging in dialogue with students, administrators, etc. And by dialogue, I mean like big D dialogue, not necessarily every single conversation, but like the overall way of communicating with different people. So let's make a connection between this chapter and chapter two. So the banking method of education that I talked about two weeks ago does not have dialogue between student and teacher, as it lacks trust between the oppressor and the oppressed. And the trust is in relation to both parties actually being able to learn from each other. So to obtain this trust, teachers need to display love, humility, hope, and faith in students when engaging in dialogue in their actions. Here's a quote on trust from page 84. Quote, Trust is contingent on the evidence which one party provides the others of his true, concrete intentions. It cannot exist if the party's words do not coincide with their actions. To say one thing and do another, to take one's own word lightly, cannot inspire trust. To glorify democracy and to silence the people is a farce. To discourse on humanism and to negate people is a lie, end quote. So tying this into the classroom, if we say that we encourage and engage in democratic practices in the classroom, then we need to trust students. And we need to actually engage in those practices and not just talk about them. So as a way to reflect on that, we can ask in what ways do the things that I'm talking about or the things that I'm trying to model what's going on in the world and in society actually reflect the practices going on in our classroom. As a more specific example related to this particular quote, if we are saying that democratic practices are something that we value, then not giving students the opportunity to have a voice in things will not assist with developing trust between teachers, students, etc. In addition to trusting students, dialoguers also need to engage in critical thinking, which is thinking that, quote, discerns an individual solidarity between the world and the people and admits of no dichotomy between them. Thinking which perceives reality as process, as transformation, rather than as a static entity. Thinking which does not separate itself from action, but constantly immerses itself in temporality without fear of the risks involved. End quote. From page 85. And by the way, this type of critical thinking is not just something that educators or teachers engage in. It's something that students engage in as well. So oppressor and oppressed are, need to constantly engage in this kind of critical reflection that results in some kind of an action, which is something that Freire mentions in like every one of these chapters. You can't just think about this. You can't just talk about this. You actually have to do something about these problems that are posed. So again, tying it back to chapter two. So Freire suggests banking educators are anti-dialogical as they are focusing on imposing their own knowledge and understandings on students, whereas a problem posing teacher-students with Ivan, are engaging in dialogue around what students want to know more about. And Freire argues that this dialogue and these kinds of practices are necessary as, quote, authentic education is not carried on by A for B or by A about B, but rather by A with B, mediated by the world. A world which impresses and challenges both parties, giving rise to views or opinions without it, end quote from page 86. So in other words, if you are going to engage in critical pedagogy, as Freire outlines it, as an educator, you cannot do some kind of an educational act for students or about students 
but you actually need to engage in it with students. So if you don't engage in that, here's a quote from pages 86 through 87 that summarizes what can happen if you don't engage in those practices. Quote, many political and educational plans have failed because their authors designed them according to their own personal views of reality, never once taking into account, except as mere objects of their actions, the men in a situation to whom their program was ostensibly directed, end quote. So this quote is very relevant to curriculum and experience design. If you are designing a lesson, a unit, curriculum, etc., and it does not take into account the people you are designing it for, then this can lead to failure. And going back to what I mentioned previously, if you're not designing it with students and their input, then it can also lead to failure. So interestingly, Freire points out that many revolutionaries and humanistic educators or liberatory educators forget about his role of dialogue and end up taking a banking approach with their followers to get them to buy into their view of the world. So in other words, rather than engaging in critical dialogue, it is taking a form of depositing and saying, you're not engaging in critical pedagogical practices, let me show you how to do it right, as opposed to taking on a form of leadership where you work with and alongside the people that you are trying to help liberate. Which by the way, chapter four, two weeks from now, we'll talk more about what does this leadership look like and how do we actually do it in the classroom? Which by the way, this relates to one of the reasons why I'm a fan of multi-perspectival approaches in education and starting with students' interests and heading in directions that they want to go, either with or without guidance, which I talk about in many other podcast episodes. So given what was just described, what can we actually do to not create epistemological colonization? In other words, what can we as educators do to prevent ourselves from becoming oppressors of ways of knowing and being that are evident within schools or the communities that we work with? So again, in relation to this question, Freire emphasizes it's not enough to think critically about the situation. We need to do something about it. Here's a quote from page 88. Quote, Utilizing certain basic contradictions, we must pose this existential, concrete, present situation to the people as a problem which challenges them and requires a response, not just at the intellectual level, but at the level of action, end quote. So again, this builds off of the problem-posing stuff that was talked about two weeks ago, and I'll talk about it a little bit more at the end of this particular episode. So in order to engage in this kind of dialogue, Freire suggests that people need to communicate effectively by aligning their discourse with the reality of people they are addressing. So in other words, educators can't just talk at students from their own positionality or understanding of the world and reality, but we need to be able to understand the thought and utilize the language of the people that we are engaging in dialogue with. So the episode that released a week ago, the interview with Brian Brown, talks a little bit about this kind of approach. So make sure you listen to that one on situated language and learning to learn a little bit more about what does this look like in terms of talking with rather than talking at people. Although we don't mention Freire in that particular episode, at least I don't remember it when we did the interview, this, this definitely relates to the conversations that we have around that particular topic. Also building off that idea, Freire points out that we need to understand the historical milieu or context that correspond to the present reality and how that reality is perceived. In particular, we need to look not just at the individual level, but at the group, community, state, national, etc., in order to understand the different social influences or hegemonic structures or forms of power reinforce the dominant narrative. So as an example, if you are, like myself, thinking of 
your educational practices critically, then you might be thinking about how you are impacting the students that you're working with. However, one of the things that we need to then do is also think about how are administrators also impacting what you are doing, which then impacts your students. Going broader than that, we can think of how are community members, how are state standards or policies also impacting that, how are national standards or policies or narratives impacting that. So there are many different layers that all influence the things that we do in our classroom that encourage us to engage in some educational practices and not in others. As a very easy example of that, think of national standards related to computer science education. What is on that list is considered important for computer science education. If there's something that is not on that list, that is considered to be unimportant for computer science education, or at least implied by not having it be one of these standards that is potentially experienced and assessed in a classroom. So why am I encouraging CS educators to actually go through these practices and think about all the forms of social influences on your classroom's practices? Here's a quote from page 95 that kind of summarizes the importance of this. Quote, when people lack a critical understanding of the reality, apprehending it in fragments which they do not perceive as interacting constituent elements of the whole, they cannot truly know that reality. To truly know it, they would have to reverse this standing point. They would need to have a total vision of the context in order subsequently to separate and isolate its constituent elements and by means of their analysis achieve a clearer perception of the whole." End quote. So it's important for us to engage in these critical practices as individual educators, as leaders within educational space, because we need to understand how our individual acts fit within the whole and how the whole impacts our individual acts. This can help us figure out the why behind what we're doing, which might better inform how and what you actually do in the classroom. And by the way, the episode two weeks from now, we'll talk about this more in terms of, well, what can we do as educators? So stay tuned for that one. However, the end of this chapter actually does provide some examples of things that we can do. So Freire suggests that we need to begin with the individual, move to understanding how that individual fits within the larger social constructs or contexts, and then move back to understanding the individual in relation to others also working within larger hegemonic influences. Hegemonic influences, as a quick reminder, is basically like the structure of power that influences what you do and is often unseen and unknown. And if you want to hear more about this, uh, listen to the episode with Joyce McCall, which I will link to in the show notes. Okay, so if we're going to go through this practice, Ferreri points out an important note that people who facilitate such a journey through social influences on a person or a group of people need to not have a predetermined itinerary but instead need to engage in dialogue with reality as it is becoming. So in other words, we can't create a lesson plan around becoming more woke and expect it to resonate in all socially constructed realities. Instead, this process of investigating how people think and what influences thought is a process of learning through investigation without predetermined destination. So educators interested in starting this process can do so by presenting aspirations of the students to them and discussing contradictions in their present situation, opposing them as problems to solve. So as an example related to CS, if students want to build and program robots and compete with them, then we can pose it as a problem in terms of, well, what do we need to do to actually be able to do that? What is preventing us right now from being able to engage in building and programming robots? Is it funding? Is it time? Is it a lack of interest from other students, etc.? 
So this approach of posing these problems may help uncover some of the factors that are negatively impacting their life and lead to action to change those circumstances. However, it may also bring up differences in perceived reality as students might not perceive something as a problem in the same way that a teacher might. So as an example of that, going back to the robotics program, maybe the teacher perceives that a lack of a robotics program is a problem, but the students disagree. Maybe they would rather have a program that focuses on game development. We won't actually know until we actually go into the community and speak with students and find out what it is that they want to learn. Now, Freddy notes that when these contradictions do come up through dialogue, it is actually encouraged to be discussed by everybody as it allows the student teachers to educate their teacher students. Again, hyphens in between those. In addition, after conversing around themes uncovered by teacher students, Freddy suggests educators can open up the discussion for students to propose their own topics. And then the educator can pose the new topics as a problem for the group to discuss. However, I'd actually argue that a top-down approach can still maintain a position of oppression because it doesn't put the faith or trust in students to initially come up with their own themes or topics to problematize. So again, going back to the robotics example, if we make an assumption that, oh, well, students don't have a robotics class, so therefore they must really want something like that, and then you start posing problems related to robotics, that is initially framing the discussion around problems that you perceive, rather than problems that students may perceive, which again, maybe they'd rather have a class on game design. Okay, so that is a summary of chapter three. Now, as always, I want to close this podcast with a discussion on some of the lingering questions or thoughts that I have. This is me just thinking out loud and sharing some things that I was pondering while I actually read through this chapter. So the first question that I have is, what's the role of dialogue with artifacts and processes or dialogue with oneself in a critical pedagogy? So as an example of artifacts and processes, using constructionist practices, so creating a program or engaging in coding, what's the role of dialogue when you're doing that? When it's dialogue with oneself, thinking through ipsative practices, which are reflections on your own understanding in relationship to your prior understanding, in what ways is that a form of dialogue? So this is not dialogue with others, but it is a dialogue through a program, coding, or oneself. And this might be a question that is getting at one of the problems that I see with constructivist approaches, is the dialogue is often framed as discussion one-on-one -on -one between people, whereas constructionist practices talk about learning through creating, and I think it's a marriage of the two. So it can, learning can happen in dialogue with others. People can also learn by creating something on their own. They can also learn by reflecting on their own or even just reading the works of others. So one-way form of dialogue at somebody. These are all forms of learning that could also include critical pedagogical practices. So another question that I have is, when might liberatory practices become a form of epistemological colonization? So for example, what if you engage with critical dialogue with students who you think are oppressed by an educational system? But through dialogue, you come to understand they like and prefer an approach that you feel is a form of oppression. As an example of this, I really enjoyed being led down a guided path on topics I was interested in within grad school. However, the approach that some of the professors took didn't really take into account the interests of the students taking the class. But I really enjoyed it because I really enjoyed the particular topic. 
Now, to argue with myself, because I like to do that, I do, however, think that the classes could have been even better if I was able to engage in dialogue with the professors about what I wanted to learn within the topic or theme of the class, as it would have made the classes even more relevant to me and customized. This is something I've talked about in many of the guest interviews where we talk about what are different approaches that you would take for classes where kids are mandated to engage in computer science and coding versus classes where they elect to be in computer science or coding classes. So another question that I have is, if Freire is arguing against approaches to education that have predetermined destinations or itineraries, what does that say for standards and backwards design models or experience design? When are and aren't these forms of oppression or liberation? So if you're unfamiliar with it, backwards designed approaches, you start with the end goal in mind. Here's the thing that I want students to learn, whether it's a practice, a concept, a standard, whatever. And you design your way backwards from that. So you think of what are the culminating experiences that will demonstrate understanding? What are the experiences that can lead to that culminating experience? And how do I introduce this particular concept, practice, standard, etc.? So you start with that end goal and you work your way towards it. But if we are determining those end goals, is that a form of dialogue? Or is that going back to the banking approach that I mentioned two weeks ago in chapter two? And again, it's not just backwards design that has this approach. Standards themselves can be a form of banking, which two weeks from now, I'll talk about that a little bit more. All right, so those are some of my lingering thoughts and questions related to this particular chapter. Stay tuned next week for another interview and stay tuned two weeks from now when I will talk about chapter four, which is the final chapter of this book. In that particular discussion, I'm going to talk about tying all these things together into a theory that discusses anti-dialogical and dialogical practices and what we as educators or leaders can do to engage in such dialogical practices in the classroom and with the communities that we live in and work in. I hope you're enjoying this particular little mini-series, and I hope you're staying safe and having a wonderful week. I will talk to you all next week.